sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, 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 Sally. Welcome. It is the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. And you are listening to episode 85. 84. I'm not doing this over again. It's episode 84 of You Don't Have to Yell. I've done like three takes and I can't get the number right. Episode 84 of You Don't Have to Yell. Now, for the last few episodes, we've been talking a lot about how data or data, depending on how you like to pronounce it, is used to target voters and carve congressional districts with great precision. And the part I've left out in all of these conversations is what's being used and how people are getting at it. So to help answer that question, I invited Denise Howell, one of the foremost experts on data privacy laws, to talk about what information is out there on us, how it's being used, and what protections are in place to maintain some level of privacy in regards to what about us is shared. And the short answers are everything, in every way, and not very much. I'd like to give a special thanks to Navar on Twitter for introducing us and making this thing happen. I will be back at the end with some final thoughts. Welcome, everybody, to You Don't Have to Yell, the podcast featuring electoral reform, political reform, and other sundry experts from around the world. I'm your host, Dan Sally, and with me today, I have Denise Howell. Uh, Denise is a lawyer focusing on the intersection of technology, data, and the law. And in addition to being one of the preeminent experts on data privacy, uh, also is a contributor to the Twit Network, does yoga, scuba dives, and loves dogs. Is there anything I missed, Denise, or no? Did I hit it all? I think you've encapsulated my whole life in a sentence. Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> that was really my goal, and I just I nailed it. Um, also, full disclosure, Denise and I right now have incredibly active homes. Uh, Denise has a dog that's ready to go out for a walk. I have a bunch of kids fighting over barbecued potato chips. It should get interesting, and I, prom- and I promise to keep any unfortunate accidents in the reel and not edit it out. So, um, yes, awesome. So, I guess to start things off, you know, one of the reasons I was really excited to have you on is uh, on this show, uh, I've been talking with a lot of folks about uh, the issues of polarization, issues of gerrymandering, and they all go back to the amount of data that's available on individuals. And uh, political parties uh, use data for for targeted campaigning for gerrymandering, for a number of nefarious purposes. And so I'm, I'm, what I'm really interested in understanding is, number one, you know, what's out there? Number two, what are its uses? And number three, like, what are the protections uh, that are available to us to make sure that the stuff we're putting out on the web isn't used for anything we wouldn't want it to be used for? And um, so I guess just to start things off, at, at a high level, can you give the folks watching and the folks listening an idea as to what kind of data or what kind of personal data is out there on them, number one. And number two, how is it being used and and what, if any, are the restrictions to its use? 
Yeah, I mean, those are two really big questions, and okay. and the answers to them involve how I sort of dwell in this uh, constant pull between being encouraged and being utterly hopeless. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and yeah, uh, I I I feel like uh, the answer to the your first question: What is out there? What's not out there? All right. I mean, there, there is so much data about us all from so many different data points. Uh, the question is, uh, it, what is out there is is potentially what you had for breakfast this morning, what you read in bed last night, you know, I, mm -hmm. really all the minor little details of your life and all the major things, you know, have you had the COVID vaccine? Are you uh, holding off on having the COVID vaccine because you're Catholic or, or, or the Johnson & Johnson variety anyway? Yep. Uh, are you an early adopter of that or mm -hmm. are you someone who's going to be late to the game and... Uh, Hold on. I'm not quite sure. Uh, you know what? We're going to have to. Uh, shoot. Uh, right? I think I think the door's locked downstairs. Can we take oh, a quick break? Well, yeah, I'm sure. The dog. Yes. Sorry. Yeah, I'll sit tight. Don't don't yeah. sweat it. Yeah, I'll be right back. Um, right. Or actually, maybe I can I can delegate this. Tyler, <laughs> unlock the front door, please. I'm sorry. I thought I unlocked it. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. No, that's fine. But hey, look, we already set up the disclaimer, so we're good. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know. This was all supposed to happen before the show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you want to start from the top there? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, just there's so much data about us uh, that is out there. The question is how it's being collected, how it's being sold, who's yeah. buying it, and how are they using it? Yeah. And when it comes to the big questions that you are asking about how that, uh, affects our political lives, uh, yeah. the lives of the people who want to be our representatives and uh, even their political lives, you know, how are they being targeted? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's a vast wild west out there. Um, I, I think that <laughs> the short answers to your two big questions are potentially everything about you is, yeah. is fair game. Yeah. Uh, depending on what devices you're using, uh, it, I'll put a caveat to that that um, says that the information about you that's being collected might not even be accurate, mm -hmm. right? People might think they're building a dossier on you that that actually doesn't reflect who you truly are. Yeah. Um, and secondly, uh, is it being used uh, by campaigns uh, aggressively? Um, possibly one might even say predatorily. Mm -hmm. So um, it's definitely an issue and it's, it's a good thing to have a discussion about here today. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause like, you know, as I was, as, what'd you say? Everything all right there? Yeah. This is, I feel like I have to up the game. I feel like I have to up my game here <laughs> nothing on my end. I promised a wrestling match. I've got dogs and kids in play. Anything could happen. All right. Oh, see, we just have the kids. That's the problem. Yeah. We need to, I need to get a dog. No, Sarah will be happy to hear that one. So, um, <laughs> So, yes, absolutely. So, you know, it's so, you know, as I was approaching this conversation, um, you know, I was thinking about the different approaches that are taken around the world. And they're actually oddly reflective of the general approaches these areas have to 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 government in general, because if you look at like China on one poll, um, everything is the states. So there is nothing that is private. Anything you put out there digitally is theirs. 
Um, you go to the opposite pole, I would, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. You know, I would say the EU represents the opposite side of that, where there are some very heavy protections and uh, the law generally errs on the side of the individual as opposed to the data gatherer. Um, and then you have the United States where everything's for sale, which is very, very American. So one of the questions I had for you is just from a legal perspective, how akin is one's personal identity or the right to own one's personal identity similar to their their right to privacy? Uh, they're two sides of the same coin, I would say. Uh, they're um, often not thought about the way you just framed it, I think, mm -hmm. by lawmakers. Okay. Um, that That privacy tends to invoke things that cause a lot of outrage and one's personal data uh, tends to be more something that is thought of as something you can contract away. Mm -hmm. uh, you can, um, and if, and if you have, you know, contracted away, then, then woe to you. And also uh, even if you haven't, if you've been confused or duped into giving over your personal information, or even if it's been sort of involuntarily taken from you yeah. or leaked in a way that um, it shouldn't have been, that would, would violate the law. Uh, there's still this big hurdle to get over in the law of how's that really harmed you? And, and, do we really need some kind of redress for that? Or are you just sort of mildly inconvenienced? Mm -hmm. um, but if you are just sort of mildly inconvenienced, you know, death by a thousand mild inconveniences <laughs> ultimately yeah. transpires. And so we really are in this weird place with the law where, as you point out, um, we don't have as strong uh, of data protection laws here in the U.S. as they do in the EU. And the EU ones are brand new, by the way. They're only two years old. Mm -hmm. So they're still uh, figuring out how that works, who's going to pay what fines, how they're going to be enforced, and and what the big outcome of having these laws in the EU where people's data is not supposed to be taken from them without their consent, mm -hmm. without their specific opt-in. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of an experiment that's playing out across the pond there. Here in the U.S., we have a number of different experiments playing out as the states do a patchwork of privacy laws. California has one that's been being enforced for almost a year now mm -hmm. uh, that's new and that will get replaced in a couple of years just to add confusion to things. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Why not? And then uh, I think it's Virginia that is about to have um, the newest data privacy law. Illinois has a super interesting one that was enacted, gosh, this seems like so long ago now, in 2008, that deals with biometric pri privacy. So anything okay. involving a fingerprint, uh, a map of your retina, a voice print, or, gee, I think there's one other thing. Oh, the face, facial recognition. Okay. Um, so what this means, as we have this sort of patchwork of privacy laws play out in the United States, mm -hmm. is... Uh, companies who want to do business in all those places, of course, companies want to do business in Illinois and California and all over the country. Yeah. They have to go into compliance mode and comply with those laws. And sometimes that means that they're just going to put measures in place that uh, 
I mean, they're they're not going to take one approach for Illinois and then another approach for all the rest of the states. Mm-hmm. So maybe they have privacy protections in, in place that extend beyond Illinois' borders and impact the rest of us in the U.S. who don't live in Illinois mm-hmm. that wouldn't have been there without the Illinois law. Certainly the California privacy laws have always worked that way. Yeah. If you go back in time to um, the beginning of the web, California is the whole reason why you ever see privacy policies on websites to begin with. Okay. Without the original privacy law in California, those wouldn't be a thing. Um, so you get this sort of tail wagging the dog effect as the different states enact different things that are important to their constituents. Uh, and then the complicating factor for your purposes and the purposes of your listeners who are interested in, you know, how's this all being used in our political process mm-hmm. is these laws tend to be uh, aimed at uh, commercial enterprises. Mm. And if you are a campaign, do you fall within that rubric? Uh, maybe mm-hmm. uh, you're certainly bu- probably buying data from commercial enterprises. So the people who you're using to harvest data about voters, they would have obligations to the electorate. Okay. Okay. So then it sounds to me like there's, there's definitely a move towards stronger protections of one's personal data on a state by state level, but it also sounds as if there's a very legal gray area as to how and whether political campaigns can use it. Is that correct? I I think that that's accurate. Um, I'm not a a lawyer for campaigns. I don't do election law, Uh, but my understanding, let's, let's look at the California law. The California law uh, is, is squarely aimed at businesses. Um, So whether or not a campaign is um, comprised as a business is, is something that would need to be worked out before uh, you would start applying the California law to a political campaign. If they're for, if, you know, I think that, um, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about things that I don't know uh, off the, t- uh, more than off the top of my head, but um, I think that campaigns are careful to organize themselves so that they are not for-profit entities, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, generally, and I've, you know, volunteered for political campaigns before, and they generally to be they generally tend to be packed with enough lawyers or enough people with law degrees that they're very careful about that stuff, and and, mm-hmm. and generally find a way to 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 work within the law. Um, right. the, the, but even if they're exempt, if they're if yeah. they're buying data and they do, yeah. uh, then then the people that they are buying data from would be subject to, like for example, in California, uh, you could. If you knew, if you were savvy enough, and who is the voter who is, right? Who all these private entities are that gather data about voters and then sell them to campaigns. If you you could get that information, uh, you could then go to them and ask that your data be deleted. You could ask them to share with you all the data that they have on you, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like there are a few journalists who have gone to that uh, extreme, but this is far from a common knowledge thing that your average everyday voter uh, knows to do or would even think about. Yeah. And one of the things kind of going through my head as we're talking too, is it seems like one of the big issues is that your average person doesn't understand the volume of data out there on them, number one. And number two, even if they did, they don't quite understand what folks would do with it. And mm-hmm. it, it, do you, is that fair? Do you think like there's a certain amount of I guess a certain lack of knowledge that the public has on how these things are used that maybe keeps more 
political momentum from building on, you know, on, in, in, across the country on this? I think people, as they run into it in their personal encounters, they get more and more educated. And just having come off the presidential election last fall, I think a lot of people are very aware of how many texts they've gotten on their phones and how many emails they're getting and how they're being targeted for, you know, God forbid they've ever given money to a campaign, right? Oh, yeah. Because then they are they're not only hit up by that campaign, those campaigns share that information mm-hmm. with other campaigns. Uh, if you look at, um, in, in some of the reading I did to gear up for the show today, yeah. uh, one of the journalists uh, thought it would be fun to look at Elizabeth Warren's website and look at her privacy policy and learn that, in fact, right there in black and white, as you're using Elizabeth Warren's website, it says, oh, we're definitely going to sell your information, share your information with like-minded political organizations. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So they they definitely, once, once you're on the hook as someone who's going to support and give money and be a valuable part of their team, mm-hmm. oh, they're going to leverage you. Yeah. And so what are, so obviously there's there's phone banking, there's mailing, you know, I give away my number, I can expect a million robocalls from similar candidates. If I have my address, of course, I'm going to get mail soliciting donations and whatever else. You know, what are some of the other ways campaigns are, are using this information? Well, I, I mean, I don't know this for certain, uh, but I would certainly love to see some sort of regulation or, or attention paid to the fact that I think it's possible I, I don't give money to political campaigns for the very reasons that we're discussing here today. Yeah. Uh, but I think that it would probably be possible if you just wanted to be like a recurring donor to set up um, a don't think about it. I'm donating $10 a month or whatever mm-hmm. uh, to this campaign, for, you know, on into the future. And then, you know, if you're some elderly person and that's hitting your credit card every month, you're not mm-hmm. even thinking about it. It's mm-hmm. going to add up and, and you may not even be aware. Yeah, uh, you may have forgotten about it. You know, the moment you did it, mm-hmm. and it could be thousands or tens of thousands, or you know, worse uh, yeah. over time. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things, and again, like kind of prepping for this conversation, um, I did a little, I did some deeper reading into um, the way data was used in 2016, for example, um, both by campaigns, but also by. Uh, you know, Russian troll farms as well. And first off, I'd like to pause here and just let everyone know that if you ever want to be scared to so much as touch your smartphone, just email Denise and ask her for any information she has on that. And you will, you'll, you'll be scared straight first and foremost, because uh, you are a font of, of scary information on, on, on data usage. Um, but number two, you know, the other thing that I found interesting was the way that uh, campaigns were able to really micro-target people by sentiment and uh, be able to find people who were either... The, the, the interesting thing, and maybe you could talk about this, there was a story you sent me that talked not about people who were persuadable, so people I can target to to vote for me, but actually people who were dissuadable, you know, people I could tell not to vote or I could dissuade from voting at all. Is that right? Oh, yeah, I'm sure that um, those sorts of efforts happen. If, if they, um, if a campaign feels that a certain voter is going to be um, uh, disadvantageous for that campaign, yeah. do they want to provide them with information or put target ads at them that, that might, dissuade them from voting. I mean, we we definitely saw that um, with 
the fallout from the Cambridge Analytica data that mm-hmm. came from Facebook that um, that black voters were targeted to be less engaged. Yep. And uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I think as bad as you think it could be, you're probably just scratching the surface of how bad it could actually get. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it just, it doesn't, and you can comment on this if you want, but it, it, it seems like that in and of itself is not good for a functioning democracy. Yeah. Uh, I agree. I yeah. Don't think, I don't think that it is. And I think that it, I told you, I swing back and forth in, in sort of manic manner between yeah, yeah. being hopeful and yeah. being uh, completely uh, discouraged by all this. And, and the hopeful aspect is I, I said that we started out this segment of our talk about um, people being personally impacted by this. And, and I think there is an I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore uh, aspect of all of this, mm-hmm. that, that people don't like being um, manipulated in mm-hmm. this way. They don't mm-hmm. like being considered a data point. Um, it, it, as we were um, gearing up for the show, it occurred to me that we've gone through something not exactly parallel, but somewhat similar with our financial information that gets aggregated and then reported out by these credit reporting firms Mm -hmm. um, who have tons of very personal information, sometimes not accurate about the entire populace Mm -hmm. and uh, a huge amount of um, influence and control over people's lives based mm-hmm. on what they're reporting this information to be. There are mechanisms, you know, now over time, as people have, have fallen victim to some of the uh, harsher aspects of that, there are laws and regulations in place that allow you to correct your credit report and have interaction with these agencies. And it occurred to me that maybe a similar kind of structure would be useful for the entities that are gathering data about us as voters mm-hmm. um, to have some sort of regulation as to who they could share that information with, um, how it could be reviewed by the voters themselves. I, I mean, pie in the sky kind of thinking here, but uh, I think that the notion of that would appeal to a lot of people. And, uh, you know, that those degrees of control over one's own data um, are definitely market forces as well. And and you and I have been talking before the show about how the big tech companies who sometimes are looked at as, you know, the problem in this scenario because yeah. they are such a huge locus of gathering so much information about mm-hmm. us that they're definitely trying to do a PR pivot in recent days um, to we are going to be good stewards of your information. We're going to help you uh, block being tracked across your web browsing history. Uh, We're going to, Apple in particular is going to do an update to iOS Mm -hmm. that um, has Facebook all in a tizzy. Oh, really? Oh, Oh, please. Let's hear this. (laughs) Because what Apple wants to do is... uh, pop up a little sort of just-in-time alert message every time an app is going to share data about you that it has gathered with another app um, and make you opt-in consent to that before it actually happens. Facebook doesn't like that at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there are a lot of sort of forces in play that come from this sort of mad as hell thing that we all feel <laughs> that, it, that yeah. is starting to play out in the market. 
Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because one of the things I was thinking and one of the things I wanted to ask you about was you, know, you do have this, at, at, at the very least, a very, a very public effort to uh, appear as, uh, you know, like you said, appear as good stewards of personal data. You have the announcement by Apple, uh, Google uh, just announced they'd be phasing out tracking across sites. Do you feel like, let me, let me see how, how, to, how to put this. Do you feel like those efforts are genuine? Like, do you feel like those efforts are going to go far enough? Or do you feel like they're going, it's, it's more window dressing effectively and that they may not go as far as they should to really protect uh, people's digital identity? I think the answer is not as clear cut. It's not a yes or no. It's okay. not a yes, they're genuine or no, they're not. I think, yeah. I think they're at least... Uh, it's. I don't think it's just lip service. I think okay. that some of some of these companies have have some, whether they're core foundational beliefs or they have decided that this is smart business. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it really matters. Yeah. Um, if they are sincere about wanting to protect people's data and and they take effective measures to do it, that's all that really we care about, right? Yeah. So so I think that there there is a degree of that happening. Uh-huh. Um, I also think that there's a degree of their, you know, like for example, um, Google is using this term now for its efforts called the privacy sandbox, which is just a PR tour de force, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what that really means? Sandbox in the, in the tech arena, in the security arena means it has these connotations of it's closed and only certain mm-hmm. special people have access. Yes. Okay. And so that's the message they're trying to get across there. And, you know, the ways in which it's closed and who are the people are, are where the sticky part will be. Um, the other thing to bear in mind about Google's big announcement where they said they're going to um, stop supporting, they're going to do, um, they're going to stop supporting um, targeted ads in the Chrome browser, which is the biggest browser globally. Yeah. Um, that doesn't, you need to scratch the surface of that a little deeper. It's good, but that doesn't mean that um, first party data is, is there's a difference between the data that um, like, for example, let's go back to Elizabeth Warren's website. Yeah. Let's say Elizabeth Warren She's buying data from all these data brokers that have accurate or inaccurate information about the voters she wants to target, right? She has these third-party firms that she's buying that data from. That's one way she's getting information. The other way she's getting information is the people who visit the website directly and click on various issues and send an email or maybe send money. That's all first-party data. Mm -hmm. That's data that people are forking over directly. Okay. Um, and so first party data is, is considered, uh, much more voluntary <laughs> than third party sure. data okay. and is treated differently. Mm-hmm. And, and back to the Google scenario, um, Google is very much still going to collect first party data about its users. It's various platforms will still collect and use first party data. What it's not going to do is allow targeted ads, uh, based on third party data. So, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of layers of the onion to unpeel there and decide exactly 
how helpful or not helpful this is. It's all good, good moves in the right direction. I will say that. Yeah. And, and to kind of take the whole Google, the Chrome example a step further, Mm -hmm. they might not be doing targeted ads, but at the same time, you know, Chrome knows every site you visit and knows every click you make. And so in theory, there's nothing prohibiting Google from just aggregating or, or gathering their own well of real deep visitor information or deep browsing behavior. Is that, is that right? Yep. Got it. Got it. So it's funny, this kind of dovetails into my next question. And before I get into it, you know, one of the things I found really interesting as I dove into this subject was the fact that this is one thing that might actually unite the right and the left together. Um, because the, the left, of course, in, in my opinion, at least from what I've seen, um, is generally fairly aware of, uh, of, or at least more sensitive to the idea of your data, your information being yours. Um, and I think this is very appealing from that perspective. The right, obviously, right at this point in time, it hates the tech industry. You know, they are, they, they're, they're there with the pitchforks and the torches. So I feel like if the political environment were ever ripe to do something meaningful, I think it would be now. Um, the editorial aside, you know, the, the, the thing that I found interesting was like you have, you know, Google with this vast amount of data on browsing behavior that they're now not going to use for targeted ads, but might use for other things. You have Facebook that has uh, this just deep demographic data on individuals. You have Amazon that has all this data on your uh, buying behaviors. Um, and, the, and with their near monopoly status, it seems like their ability to sway the conversation is just enormous. I mean, do you have any comments on that? I'm kind of going off on a bit of a tangent here. Yeah, I think that um, definitely uh, each of these entities that you've discussed has a privacy policy yeah. that somewhere in there says, you know, we're, it will talk about how they're going to sell or use or share your data mm-hmm. with third parties if it's going to do that at all. Mm-hmm. But it's also going to talk about how they're going to use the data themselves uh, for to improve your the functionality and your user experience and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know very very broad terms but but that lets them do lots of things yeah um, does it let them uh, determine or or try to sway your political opinion I don't think so uh, you know I think that that if it were coming out that a site was actually acting that way that, that someone, let's say Jack Dorsey at Twitter. Yeah. Right. He's a political guy. Yeah. Uh, he has strong political opinions. Yeah. Let's, let's say uh, it came out that, that there was actually some sort of program in place at Twitter. And by the way, I'm not saying this. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. It does not hypothetically, hypothetically folks. Yes. Yes. That where um, Twitter was, you know, actively engaged in trying to do what you're, you're suggesting to um, yeah. sway voter opinion on a particular issue on a, you know, from a broad philosophical standpoint, whatever. Yeah. I, I think that um, not only would people, feel so violated they would leave the site in droves it, it were this to come to light obviously but but that it would be a violation of their terms of service that would would involve you know it, maybe not of their privacy policy which tend to be worded rather vaguely and broadly 
but you know, I, I, I think that the private actions um, against that kind of behavior would be swift. Uh, and, and we would have to see, you know, what the courts did with that. Again, are we, are we talking about a harm that courts will recognize under privacy law or something like that to happen? Um, I think that's, that's a little easier to show than simply, um, you know, they gave my email address to another party. We are going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment with Denise Howell. I hope you're enjoying this episode and wanted to take a short break to remind you why we're here and how you can help. Now, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know how strongly we need true multipartisan democracy in the U.S. to fight the us versus them narrative in politics. And ranked choice voting is by far the easiest reform that can open up our two-party duopoly to some real competition. And if you know this is important, and I can't believe you'd be listening to this podcast if you didn't, and you want to take action, and I know you do, go to rankthevote.us. It's an organization dedicated to building out the ranked choice voting movement in every state in the union. You can sign up right on the site, get updates about ways you can take part in your home state, and other updates on the electoral reform movement around the country. Remember, there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the root, and you don't get closer to the root than the ballot box. I hope you'll join me. Now, back to the episode. You know, one of the things I, I think a lot about is whether we, you know, eventually morph into some corporate technocracy in a way where um, you have these large, very powerful institutions, lots of money, lots of data, um, and just have enormous sway over the markets in and of themselves and of the information you get. Um, I'll, I'll take my tinfoil hat off now, Denise. <laughs> I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't invite you here for that. No, um, I, let's... I- I wanted to sort of run something by you and see what Please. you think about it. Yeah. Um, you and I met through, and you probably haven't given it a second thought, and I didn't until right before the show today. Mm-hmm. You and I didn't know each other before um, one of your followers, listeners on Twitter, yeah. uh, reached out to you and said, hey, uh, you've been talking about these issues in connection with gerrymandering, the data targeting and all. You might want to talk to Denise Howell. Yeah. So this guy, Navar, uh, on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, or gal. I didn't actually check. <laughs> I think he's a guy. Yeah, oh yeah. In fact, it actually says in his profile, um, he, he put his pronouns in there. Oh, perfect. So, oh, yes. Thank you. So, yes. So, uh, in any event, he was familiar with my work at twit, uh, for whatever reason, my work in general, he was familiar with you and he arranged this connection that is just, I would call this kind of the Holy grail of, information sharing and gathering, right? Where there's someone who actually knows something and it doesn't have a, doesn't have skin in the game other than, you know, no sort of self-interest. He's not being paid. He's not being uh, influenced. He, he, his motivations are absolutely pure uh, to put me together with you and make this happen today. Yeah. And 
that kind of holy grail of online interaction and information sharing, he didn't, you know, hack my system to get my email or anything, you know, all the information was out there in public. Yeah. And, and this all flowed very seamlessly. Mm -hmm. And yet it was this perfect holy grail of information sharing and, and gathering. And what I think about is, are we ever going to get there uh, in the advertising industry or in the political information industry where that kind of information, it's a very, it's, it's the most effective kind of information sharing and targeting, right? Yeah. Uh, And it's one that everyone buys into that where nobody's privacy is being violated. You're being provided with exactly the information that you want when you want it. Uh, in a context that doesn't violate any of your expectations, can we ever get to that kind of interac- interaction with um, both the ads that we see online and on TV and everywhere else? Uh, and can campaigns ever get there where you're having like legitimate exchanges with people who want to support you rather than just trying to fleece them down for their 10 bucks a month on their credit card? Yeah, I hope so. I, so I'll tell you what, and I'm going to kind of go go off a little bit. I think the answer is yes, and I think somebody has to do it. I think that's the, that's the big difference. And um, when I look at how, in general, how campaigns approach the the, the digital space, um, they they very much approach it in, I guess, what I would consider maybe the more um, transactional or more outbound approach to marketing, which is you have a list of people that you bought from this person, you send them emails, soliciting donations or whatever it is you want them to do. Um, you build ads targeting them, you send messaging that's designed to influence them. Um, the, the underutilized and kind of something you, you, and tell me if I'm misunderstanding you, but I think the, the underutilized, uh, resource that all campaigns have is the ability to find is the ability to work through trusted networks to get their message out there and their ability to 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 have their fans or 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 have their fans reach out to other people who are who are like minded or other people who who might uh, who who it might appeal to, um, and I I do feel I'll give you my thought, and this is for every campaign out there, target the problem like build. <laughs> Uh, Denise, if you don't mind, I'm going to give, I'm going to give like a little marketing one-on-one to every campaign out there. And you, you tell me your thoughts on this, but, but so, okay. So if you are a candidate, you are going into office because there are a certain number of problems you're starting, you're trying to solve, right? Okay. So what that means is that there are voters out there who share those concerns or what that means ideally is the, the voter who's out there who shares those concerns is going to vote for you, right? So market those solutions first, before you even market the candidate, market those solutions, you know, get out there what you would do, propose that, get involved in conversations around the best solutions to those problems. That's where you're going to build that tribe. And that's where you're going to be able to really reach that organic, uh, that, that organic growth or, or that get that organic following. And if you look at somebody like Bernie Sanders, uh, as an example, um, or, you know, Trump for that matter, I'll, I'll, I'll give him, give him his due there, but, you know, Bernie Sanders was 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 able to attach a lot of his policies to a lot of the angst a number of people were having. 
Um, and, and, and Trump as well. And I would say in terms of, you know, the ability to just like raw market, I think Trump's probably better at that. He's just a master brander. Um, but I think Sanders from a content and from a policy perspective was able to kind of build his tribe that way. And so, you know, I would say to any campaign out there, you know, looking to buy a treasure trove of whatever information you want, you know, cable viewing habits or whatever, maybe take that energy, take that money um, and put it towards better communicating how you address problems to the individual. Am I being too Pollyanna here, Denise, or is this, is, is this something they've already thought of or, or no? I think they've thought of it, but they're not, I don't think that they have bought into what you and I instinctively feel is the effectiveness of what you're describing. Yeah. I think they feel, they feel like they have to hedge their bets yeah. and, and, you know, that, that certainly this micro targeting of voters that they're doing they're getting some kind of results out of it. They're probably not getting the kind of goodwill that you're describing yes. um, in connection with the Sanders campaign, but they're getting money. They're getting uh, impressions. They're getting stories shared around where they want stories shared around. Um, so they're getting concrete benefits from it in that way, but are they getting the kind of goodwill and faith and feeling great about your candidate? Uh, that that you would like to see them accomplish? Probably yeah. no. And, and yeah. they're probably, you know, again, to the effect that people feel like they're being violated by all the texts on their phones and the emails in their inbox, they're they're generating the opposite of goodwill. Yeah. So, you know, I, I I feel like if again, I'm not a politician or involved in politics, but if I were, I would certainly want to have a come to Jesus moment with my marketing and PR and strategic team about, we don't want to piss people off. (laughs) We don't want to make them feel violated. And so let's go from that premise Mm -hmm. and, and see what we can accomplish. And, you know, I don't think, I don't think campaigns are there yet. I think that there is this very aggressive, as I said earlier, kind of predatory, um, approach toward we got to go out there and get these voters and get this sway public opinion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the other thing too, is now the campaign cycle never ends. So you're kind of always running for office. So uh, in a lot of ways, they probably don't even have time to breathe and and think about this stuff. Um, I've got two more, two more, or one topic I want to discuss or one last topic, which is, you know, what's coming down the pike because, you know, Right now, we you know there's this debate going on uh, as to how to use personal data for ad targeting. But you know some of the things we chatted about before this recording um, were things like artif- the use of artificial intelligence, uh, deep fakes. So basically, being able to make a video that looks like a person is delivering a message when they're in fact not. Um, what are some of the things people should be? maybe aware of, afraid of, happy for that are, that are, that are coming in the next couple of years. Yeah. And by the way, we had dog issues earlier in the show. Now I believe someone has set up a chipper shredder outside my window. I don't know if you can hear it as loudly as I can, but trees are being fed into this thing. Really? I got to tell you for Friday, the people around us are exceptionally motivated. (laughs) They are. They they just—they're going to get stuff done before the weekend. So good on them. 
I don't know what to tell you. I don't know if you're hearing this as badly as I am, but I apologize if you are. There's really nothing I can do about the chipper shredder outside. Let me hear it. Hold on just a second. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's good. We can filter it. I can filter it out. There's actually something on the editing that'll take that out. So Right. Fantastic. Um, Yeah. So Um, chip away. So, yeah, I mean, you hit on two big ones. Uh, the, the deep fake moment that we're seeing this week has to do with these Tom Cruise fakes that are circulating uh-huh. that look very much like Tom Cruise is talking and laughing and joking with you and and making uh, it clear that you're buying into the fact that it's Tom Cruise, but it's not Tom Cruise. And, and so they're really demonstrating, you know, how how sophisticated and and yet how accessible these tools are. Uh, really, anyone, yeah, I, I have no idea who's behind the Tom Cruise thing. I'm sure that will come out. But, um, you know, I, we were talking, you and I, before the show about how certainly deepfakes get a lot of attention for, you know, if you've got a very high profile person mm-hmm. who's being made to say words that they didn't actually say, yeah. that express sentiments they don't actually mean, that's problematic. But what if it's someone, you know, someone just gets the image of your ne- your sweet, kind, little old lady next door neighbor who you know and trust and value and she's wise and you rely on her and you lean on her for her wisdom in life and someone throws a deep fake at you <laughs> involving her. Yeah. And, and, uh, and you're, you know, you just don't think to question it because she's not somebody famous, but it's going to be super effective. You know, hope I, I, as I said, I go through <laughs> life yeah. alternately hopeful, alternately woefully discouraged, but always questioning. And, yeah. and I try and convey this to anyone and everyone who would listen that, gee, if someone does send you a video of your next door neighbor, hopefully you would go to them and check things out and make sure that uh, Wanda actually <laughs> said these things and expresses these sentiments. But I mean, I think that that uh, that kind of trust but verify uh, approach has to apply to everything we read and everything we're sent. And you know, it, it certainly, I, I know again, back to just sort of the elderly population, I really feel for older people in our society who are trying to use tools that they feel are keeping them, um, modern and in touch, whether it's email or a smartphone or, uh, you know, any way that they're communicating and feeling like, gee, you know, I'm, I'm in my 80s, but I'm I'm still in there and communicating. And yet they do not have the degree of sophistication to lock those devices down, to go through and uh, take the excruciating Google privacy checkup that we should take like a couple of times a year where you go through their checklist. And, and it, it is kind of excruciating, but it's very worthwhile. I feel like we all need a personal data assistant who's charged with doing these things for us to uh, make sure that, you know, the things on your smartphone, you, you can set your smartphone so that you don't receive calls from numbers that are not in your contact list. And yes, that means some people who maybe you want to reach you are going to go straight to voicemail. Uh, but if they really need to reach you, they will go to voicemail and you can reach back out to them. Um and otherwise, you're just not going to know that that person called. Uh, you're certainly not going to 
know to pick up the phone and have a direct interaction with them. And I think, feel like that kind of, you know, minor tweak would be really valuable for some of our older population. And they just have no idea that these kinds of things are possible. And in fact, they're the most vulnerable to being, you know, reached and conned and scammed. So I, I, I worry about that and it troubles me. I don't want to take away people's freedoms and institute some sort of nanny state. But at the same time, I, I feel like there are a lot of people out there getting taken advantage of. Yeah, well, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, and, and I think kind of getting back to the way, you know, Europe governs and the way that they've governed personal privacy and the way we govern in the United States, you know, Europe kind of takes this precautionary principle where before we do something or before we don't regulate something, we want to make sure that it doesn't cause any harm. Um, and we're kind of the opposite. And I think when you get into a situation like we're in now, where technology is just, it is changing so rapidly and, uh, and can be very difficult for folks who are not like in the industry to keep up with. Um, it's not, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that your typical consumer is going to know all the things they should do. And if they do figure it out, whether they're going to learn in time or whether they're going to learn about it before it's obsolete, you know? Um, and, and to kind of build on your point too about, um, just the population as a whole, but especially the, the um, elderly population, you know, as a, as a society, we are just getting way more information than we've ever been used to. Um, and I think about, you know, the way people used to consume information, which was, uh, you know, a, a, a once a day nightly newscast and maybe two newspapers. Maybe if you read a lot, you read three. And I think it was a lot easier to manage. And now there's just so much credibly credible seeming information out there that, and I shouldn't just single out the elderly population. I think we as a society on the whole just haven't figured out how to process it all yet. And yeah, I totally yeah. agree with you. Yeah. Um, one other thing you asked, asked about was coming down the pipe. Yeah. Um, certainly artificial intelligence will start to play a larger role in what information we see and how the data about us is delivered to people who want to target and manipulate us. So it, it's certainly um, in rudimentary stages now, but I expect in the next decade or so um, it's going to look vastly different. So, so definitely um, something to watch out for, something to pay attention to, something for our regulators and lawmakers to pay attention to. Um, another thing, uh, sort of, we're talking about things that, that might, you know, put us more behind the eight ball. Um, I, th I think there's a constant cat and mouse between, you know, oh, you're being targeted. I know, but here I have an ad, a third party ad blocker. I'm going to stick on my browser and then I'm not being targeted. So, you know, definitely at least for a sophisticated um, segment of the population uh, or, and, you know, to some degree it's starting to trickle down to where these things are actually built into the tools that we use to with settings on that protect us and they don't need to be switched on. They're on by default. So, so that kind of development is really helpful and encouraging. One other thing I think your listeners might be interested in is there's been a movement afoot for a long time. Uh, it's not super, you know, well-known or public, but really good people doing good work in this area 
Um, the movement is called VRM, which stands for Vendor Relationship Management. Okay. And it uh, uh, sort of comes out of um, some folks at Harvard who have um, set up, you know, web resources for a mailing list and things for people to interact and try and work on these problems. And the idea there, and it was really targeted more at the private sector vendors, but the idea there is to um, sort of flip the switch on how our data is out there and it's just a question of how it's used. Can we somehow put the genie back in the bottle Mm -hmm. and have our data live in a trusted uh, location where we then decide okay, um, someone wants to know my interests. I've now just signed up for a new social media platform and they're asking me to check a bunch of boxes. You know, typically you would be asked to check a bunch of boxes that reflect your interests so they can give you relevant information related to your interests. Instead of, you know, you forking over all that information each time you have one of these interactions, you would have it in a centralized place and you would go, okay, I now authorize uh, Clubhouse, this new social media audio platform to know that I am a Star Trek fan and anything else, you know, right. So you could have a little silo of information that you direct outward as opposed to it being pulled from you by every single site. And I'm not sure, you know, the, the mechanism of that would involve, you know, okay, so are you paying this third party trusted agent that's, doling out your information? Is it somehow subsidized by the state so that we all have more protected and private information? We've all acknowledged as a society that that's important. So we're going to make this, you know, we're going to not make it uh, ad supported and free. We're going to make it government supported and uh, useful. So who knows uh, what sort of developments will happen there. But this whole notion that uh, they have all our data and we are not in control of it at all is, is what VRM wants to um, flip on its head and say, nope, I have my data. I get to control who has it and who uses it for what. Okay, cool. So if you, it, you the, I always like to leave listeners with kind of, a, kind of a, a call to action or something they can do to have an impact on this particular issue. So if I'm sitting and I'm listening and I'm just your normal lowly voter, um, what are some things I can either push for in the uh, public policy side? What are some things I can push for in government? What are some ways I can take action? And what are some things maybe I can do on a, or, or what are some things I can do privately to just make sure I'm better protecting myself while regulation catches up? Really good questions. Um, one thing I think a lot of people do that completely uh, thwarts and turns on its head the notion that if you have a phone number or an email address for someone, you can reach out to them and try and persuade them of things. Um, don't use your actual email that you use for all of your trusted interactions with your business colleagues and your personal colleagues. Um, don't use that for any sort of commercial or political interaction. It's super easy to set up a separate email account Lots of people just call them spam email accounts uh, that you would use for every commercial transaction, every political transaction, and and uh, and never ever read the emails that come in there unless you have to. You know, if you have to confirm that "Hmm, I made this donation or 
oh, I made this order. Has it shipped yet? You can go in there and confirm that, but otherwise just don't rely on it for your information. It's not part of your information diet. It's, it's a level of protection for you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's super effective and, and makes it so that, you know, if you're getting a dozen emails from a political campaign and they want you to up your contributions, you're just not going to see them. Yeah, it's not okay. coming. It's not on your radar in a way that uh, is going to impact you. So that kind of thing. Um, using a fake phone number is more problematic and yeah. gets into sort of more dicey identity theft kind of areas yeah. of the law. Okay. And you, you certainly don't want to start um, harassing some poor person by. Uh, using a fake email address that actually is attached to some third party mm-hmm. or a fake net phone number for that matter that actually is too. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, Jenny, Jenny, who can I turn to? 8675309. Can we yeah. all just use that number as our yeah. fake number? Who knows? <laughs> but there should be a way that you can enter digits in a phone number field that does, you know, hopefully doesn't harm anybody else, but keeps your number from being out there and used against you. I'm I'm, I'm thinking about the poor person who actually has an email address fake at fake.com and just, (laughs) or ASDF, ASDF at ASDF.com. Probably (laughs) just getting crushed. Right. Well, well, that little, little measures like that, turning on ad blocking in your browsers, if it's not already on using a third party ad blocker, Um, If you're an older person uh, and this is all going right over your head, enlist a younger person in your family or your neighborhood to come set up some of these things for you. Yes. I'm talking to my dad. Not not regret it. Not me, dad. Not me. Mm -hmm. Call call my brother. Call Pete. So, okay. That's good. So on a personal level, those kinds of measures. On a more sort of policy level. Um, certainly it matters um, who you're doing business with. And uh, we've seen this play out, you know, social networks that the right didn't like, they're going off those networks and trying to find other networks that they like better. Um, now, those networks are going to be constrained by the same legal requirements as the ones they just left. So I don't know, <laughs> they're going to solve their problems that way. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, it, we do live in a free market economy. There are lots of alternatives to the services we use. Uh, if you don't like, you know, something that a service you're using is doing, uh, then don't use it. And if you do like it, use it. Good. You know, so if you like these privacy steps that, um, some of the companies we've discussed today are taking uh, just continue to use those services and, and let them know, you know, write to them and say, I'm, I am not changing my web browser, Google, because I like these steps that you're taking to protect my privacy. Okay. Um, same thing, of course, you know, uh, all of our elected representatives love to hear directly from uh their constituents. Now, again, when you provide them with their email, with your email address, you're going to hear back from them. Yeah. So bear that in mind, but it is effect, you know, it is very effective to call or email them and say, Hey, I'm really concerned about this. These are steps that I'm taking. These are companies that I like. I don't like what these other people are doing and here's why. Um, so, so definitely make your voice hear, heard there. And the other thing I would just mention is it's um, super problematic, unfortunately. You mentioned there's a climate um, against tech in Washington right now. And I think over the last few years, we've seen some uh, kind of terrifying examples of what happens, how out of touch with how things work 
our mm-hmm. lawmakers actually are when they yeah. get um, people on the hot seat and start asking them questions and don't even know the questions to ask. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Zuckerberg, yeah. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but the Zuckerberg trial was, or not trial, I should say, but the Zuckerberg hearing. Testimony, yeah. Testimony. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah, like, exactly. And, and you just sit there and facepalm the whole time and go, I can't believe these are the people that we have, you know, trying to make these decisions. So I don't have a whole lot of faith in our current Congress's ability to regulate in these areas in a super effective way. I, I like that they pull in smart people to give testimony and and try and help them out. I would, you know, if you know smart people in this area, please encourage them to interact with their lawmakers so that they, you know, are passing the benefit of that knowledge along because these people need help. Oh, they really do. They really do. Well, I'm going to include, um, for, for everybody watching and everybody listening, I'm going to include some resources in the show notes on YDHTY.com. Uh, that will help you all lock yourselves down so you're not throwing your data out there. I'm also going to include a bunch of these scary resources Denise sent over to me so you could all be spooked into doing so. And I really, I really appreciate your time here, Denise. It's, uh, we, we, we talk a lot about how political campaigns use data. We don't really ever talk about exactly what that entails. So you've, you've helped us shed some light on this. Thank you so much, Dan. I really enjoyed meeting you and being here. And thanks to our mutual friend on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. Navar, thank you so much. All right, Denise, thanks again. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and consider writing a review. And if you haven't subscribed already, consider this your invitation to come aboard. Now, If that conversation that I just had didn't totally creep you out and send you running back to your landlines, I've included a whole bunch of resources in the show notes to scare you straight. You can find them on ydhty.com. That is Y as in you, D as in don't, H as in have, and you know the rest, .com. Click on episodes. You'll see my episode with Denise right at the top. Now, As Denise mentioned, regulations around the use of personal data in the U.S. are moving slower than new technology is developed to exploit it. And Europe's data privacy law, GDPR, seems to take an interesting step of prohibiting the use of data without consent, slowing this process a bit. Now, initiatives being passed on a state-by-state basis are a good start. As the only thing private enterprise hates more than regulation is a bunch of different regulations and a patchwork of contradictory state laws might be enough for them to want a larger piece of federal legislation on the matter. We shall see. As always, muted music. Music. Music is courtesy of QuellerTac, as is Mutazik. Uh, YDHTY's editorial advisor is Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina, United States of America, by none other than the big Geno, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios.